No. We're circling, circling around to land now. We've got two more Sundays. Romans 8, and uh, I've got a revised version of the glory road up here. I thought it would make more sense going from left to right. That was the first thing. You know, instead of going Hebrew and Chinese, which goes from right to left, goes from left to right. Let me pray for us as we start. Father, once again, help us as we study your word. Uh, show us what you would desire for us to see, and show us Jesus and all his beauty and glory. That's our prayer in his name. Amen. All right, we've come to verse 31. Um, Look at verse 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? Now, what things do you think he's talking about? Well, he's talking about every, the whole first eight chapters up to this point. He's talking about everything in the eighth chapter up to this point. And he's especially talking about the previous paragraph. What do we say to this? So remember that uh, Romans is not an academic paper. It's a, it's a letter that was written to uh, local congregations or one big local congregation. And so this is the big so what question because in the previous paragraph especially, and I'm sure Matt took you through the tunnel of love here last week, for new, predestined, called, justified, glorified. I, I'm calling that the tunnel of love because it was love that got you into it. <coughs> the word for new means loved beforehand, loved before time. So it was love that got you into this uh, chain, and I'm assuming Matt told you that once you're in that chain, you can't come out, out of that, <coughs> excuse me, out of that chain. Um, and then just to remind you, that this is, the picture here is of a road 8.18 talks about the glory, 8.30, glorified. We could also add the good of verse 28. <clears throat> this is a road, this is your life, and all things. Has anybody noticed that that phrase doesn't only appear in 28? It's also in 32, and it's also in 37. I'd never really noticed that until, until now. It's in a lot of places, but in this, in this, uh, in the same. Well, we'll come back to that in just a second. So, all the things that happen to us—we talked about this before—acts like a curb to keep you on that road, on this road, and push you down the road to the glory. So you can't come out of the road just because of these things. But then you've got the double, triple security of being in this purpose. So. Romans 8 is about assurance. Remember? That's what it's about. So now he's, Paul has gathered up everything he said, and he's going to pour it into that question that begins verse 31. What do we say to these things? Now, speaking of, let me just camp out for a second on what we've been saying that the chapter is about. The chapter is about assurance. Now, Matt said the chapter is about the work of the Holy Spirit. True, also true. The work of the Holy Spirit is our assurance. 
uh, assurance is, is, is to be able to say, I know that I'm a Christian. I know that I'm going to be safe until the end, as opposed to, I hope so. I hope I'll do enough. I hope I, I think I'm a Christian. I hope I'm going to get there. I hope I've done enough. I hope I, I think, I hope. But the New Testament calls us to be sure. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, some, all through church history, there have been some branches of the church who said, no, you can't have assurance of salvation. That's a dangerous thing. The Bible doesn't teach that. You can't believe that. Now, why would anybody say that? Why would anybody say assurance, being, just being sure that Christianity is true and that you are a Christian, that you are inside that purpose and you can't come out, why would, it, why would anybody say it's dangerous for you to believe that? Why do you think? Hmm? Uh, that's the critique of it, but why would anybody not want you to have assurance? Why would any branch of the church say, no, you can't, mm -mm, you can't be sure? Not till the end. Well, the, what is the, what is the uh, critique that's thrown back at Paul over and over right here in Romans? It is, if you believe that, then you won't have any motive to live right. You won't have any motive for holiness. You'll say, well, I'm, I'm saved, and that's it, so it doesn't, matter. it doesn't matter what I do now. Now, you remember Paul has answered that. He was no dummy. That was thrown at him, and he's answered it. Um, I think maybe we could argue it the other way. It's actually the insecure Christian who says, I don't know, I'm not sure, who is a danger to himself and to people around him. Why would I say that? How could that be the case? It produces a performance mentality which will wear you out. I never know if I've done enough. I never know if I've been good enough. And that, that just defines my whole life, and that's a miserable way to live. But also, it, it can wreck our relationships with people around us, right? Because the insecure, unsure Christian always has something to prove, and that has a negative effect on all your relationships. You're always comparing yourself to others. You'll always be critical of other people to make yourself feel better rather than being gracious and accepting, uh, so one of the big themes of the New Testament, not just Romans, not just Romans 8, is assurance and certainty for the Christian. You could even argue that one book is given completely to that theme, and that's 1 John. You can be sure, you can know, right? So now Paul has, has made his case, and he comes to verse 31, and he says, all right, what do we say about these things? And he answers his own question with five more questions, right? Uh, somebody tell us what a rhetorical question is. What is that? What is it? Because the answer is obvious. So let's, let's look at these five questions. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Hmm. Verse 32, 
He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's, that's Paul's John 3.16 right there, 8.32. These are all ridiculous questions, but we need them. You know why? Because we're ridiculous people, and we forget these things, and we say we believe them, and then we act like we don't believe them an hour later. 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? What kind of question is that? 34, who is to condemn? So those two questions are really the same question, just from a different angle. So we're going to rush through and talk about those four to start with, and then we'll save the last one for last next week. And that's the question of verse 35, which kind of gathers it all together again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? All right, so the answer to all those questions is nobody, nobody, nothing, and nobody. And then he draws it all together with who can separate us from... God's purpose of love in Christ. Who can separate us from that? Now, uh, what, what somebody will say, and Paul's going to answer this. This, was, this is a preview for next week. Somebody will say, well, I can separate myself. I can quit. People do it all the time. Right? Right? Is that right? Well, either, either we can't be separated from Christ's love or we can. Well, we'll just let's wait and see how he answers. Because Paul, remember, Paul was no dummy. And he, don't you think he thought about that? Don't you think that's got to be included in everything he says here? Well, once you're inside of this thing, you can't come out. You can't. You can't. Impossible is not a strong enough word for it. You can't come out of it once you're in this purpose and you were put in it before you existed. All right? Spend the rest of the afternoon just trying to get your head around that. You were put in it before you existed. Okay. Let's look at uh, the first one. If God is for us, who can be against us? Can we just go on to the next one? If we can just go on to the next one, why does Paul even ask it? Well, the answer to that question is nobody. What Paul is asking us to do in, with these last five, the, these five rhetorical questions is just think, think, right? One of the, one of the, uh, one of the uh, raps that skeptics throw at Christians is you people just don't think. If you were... You're gullible, you're dumb, you don't believe, you believe anything you're told, you don't think. Well, you can't read Romans without thinking. So a lot of what he's doing here, he's just saying, now just think this through. Just think. All right? If... Yes. 
That's right. And that's what that is. Yeah. Yes. If that God is for us, well, who can be against us? Now, just, just consider the second half of the question first. Who can be against you? Come on, you know about a dozen. Who, who all can be against you? Oh, that's the biggest one, Satan. Right. Um, there's all kinds of answers to that. Our own sin, our own fallen nature, our own stupid choices, our suffering, our bad experiences. Verse 18, the sufferings of this present time. Um, cultural forces that hate Christianity that are growing by the day and, and then unseen demonic forces. There's plenty that can be against us. Um, but God is for us. And here's where we go back to verse 28. That God is for us. 28, 29, 30. The whole point of verse 28 is that all these things... And all these things in the context, remember, is especially our suffering. Especially the, the bad things, the hard providences. If God is able to take all of those things and use them to keep us on the road to glory and push us down the road to glory, if that's who God, if God is big enough and great enough to do that, that's who's for us. And so nobody can be against us. Okay. Uh, all right, says Paul, now I'll remind you of just how for us he is. And that's, that's when he throws out the second question in verse 32. Who shall bring, that's 33, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, this is the biggest point of the whole morning. The all things of verse 32 is the same as the all things of verse 28. So what, what kind of an argument is that? Verse 32. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Right? Paul is saying if God has already done the harder thing then why, why be afraid he couldn't do the easier thing? He's done the harder thing. If he's done the harder thing, he can do the easier thing. Does that make sense? That's all, he, that's all he's saying. Uh, but also he's bringing out proof. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to say, well, God is for me. But he brings out, he brings into the argument an event a fact, something that happened in history at a place that you can find on a map in front of eyewitnesses who wrote it all down. He's, he's talking about the death of Jesus on the cross outside Jerusalem under a Roman governor named Pilate around the year 30 A.D. So verse 32 is about the cross and it's about the love that sent Jesus to do that. Now look at verse 32. Just look at that for a second, because there, there's so much to bring out there. We have to sort of be selective. What do you want to say about that? 
Um, what jumps out at you in verse 32? He who did not spare his own son. Who was the architect of the cross? It was God that did this. You might say, well, yes. But just think about it. It was no, it was no accident or tragedy that God endured. It wasn't a, any kind of plan B. God himself did it. He arranged the whole thing and he brought it to pass, right? God did this. And that's crucial to Paul's point in the verse. It's God who has done the harder thing. Does, uh, does verse 32, do you think maybe Paul had, a, had an Old Testament story in the back of his mind? And tell us that story in 10 seconds. Yes. Yes. In the story of Isaac, Abraham and Isaac, God did step in and spare Isaac. He spared Abraham's son. He stepped in and spared him. He did not spare his own son. Did not spare his own son who pleaded to be spared. Now, we're, we're getting into things here where we just have to kind of almost we need to all take off our shoes because we, we just halfway don't even know what we're talking about. Pleaded to be spared. What? Yes. And what lies behind? He didn't spare his own son. What, what lies behind that? Right? Here's what we can't understand, but we have to try. The eternal, perfect love between the persons of the Trinity, between God the Father and God the Son, eternal, perfect love. We can't understand that, but maybe the closest we can come is to think of our affection for our own children and our own grandchildren. That's, that might be a, just, a, just the beginning of a hint of it. Um, in the words of Romans 8.32, as I mentioned, Jesus said in the garden, he said, would you spare me this? you spare me this? Is there some other way to do this? Would you spare me this? But God did not spare his own son, but gave him up, turned him over. The, the same word that's used, that's the same word that's used in the Gospels when it says that Judas and Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leadership gave him up. The same word here. The father gave him up, gave up the son. Gave him up to what? To, to, experience, to experience utter and total rejection and abandonment 
to become legally responsible for the sins of others and then to go to hell for those sins except that he didn't go anywhere. It's, it's, it's like hell broke loose from wherever it is and picked up and moved and squatted for six hours on that little hill outside of Jerusalem and dumped everything it had on top of that solitary figure. And even that, and I'm just throwing around words, we, we, don't, we, can't, we don't understand this. But that's what God the Father did not spare his son from. Uh, and so the big point, and it, this is really the easier part of the verse, the big point is he's done the harder thing. He will do the lesser thing, which is what? Graciously give us all things. Do you, do you follow the logic? He's done the harder thing. He will do everything else. There's no reason to think he won't or can't. So again, what is all things in verse 32? What is it? What is all things in verse 28? So it's not just food and housing, the things that, you know, Jesus talked about a slightly different thing when he said God knows your needs will take care of you. Is, is it? It's got to include that, but is that all? Remember, in verse 28, it's, it's the all things. And in the context of the chapter, that's all of our suffering. 8.18, that's all of our suffering. All things keep us on this road and push us down this road. So if God has done the harder thing, now here's a whole new way to think of your hard providences that you've had and that you will have. They are things that God graciously gives. Now think of that. How will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? Everything that you need to keep you on the road to glory and to push you down that road, everything you need, God will graciously give you. Good things hard things, necessary things, all things. So the answer to the rhetorical question is, of course he will. Right? And that's... I think that's, John, that's Paul's John 3.16. That's the full gospel. That's as full as he ever puts it in one verse. Right there, 8.32. All right? Now, the next two questions. Uh, well, let me pause and say this. I should have said this before we started. What are, if you had to, if you had to group everything that shakes your assurance... And you know what these things are. You've fought with them all your life. If you had to put it all into two, two groupings, two big things that shake your assurance, what would they be? Because those are the very two things Paul's addressing here. What's, what's one? Our own sin, and the other, I could say, is our suffering. 
bad things happen to us. Am I really a Christian? Is Christianity even true? Can, can my suffering be included in this? And those are two things that can shake our assurance. And you see how Paul has just addressed the suffering again by saying that if God has done the harder thing, then he will do all the rest of the things and he is in control of all those things and they're pushing you down the road to glory and keeping you on the road. So we could call the, these two things the, all, the curb of all things. But then there's, there's my own sin and my own stupidity and my own slow growth and my own hard-headedness and my own just on and on we could go. My own cold-heartedness. I don't, I don't feel... You know, you know what I'm saying. What about that? So he addresses that. Um, how can God keep being for me? As he says in verse 31, when I struggle the way that I do, when I'm a, an inconsistent, struggling Christian, so he asked two questions, 33 and 34. And these are, uh, these are legal challenges. These are courtroom questions. Right? So they're really the same question just from two different angles, 33 and 34. And what he's asking is, who will rise up at the last day and say... He sinned way too much to be a Christian. Who can do it? Or she sinned way too much to go to heaven. They really ought, you ought, she really ought to be condemned. Yes, you're right. Who can do that? Can that happen at the last day? Again, we kind of, well, they're sort of stupid questions, but we're, we need to hear them again. Right? Because I, I'll forget this. So the first one, uh, who, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Is that simple enough? Did you know that, that you could, one way you could say what the gospel is, you could say this. The gospel is come to the judge. Now, judge is a word that nowadays skeptics can't stand. They, oh, no, 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 no. God is not a judge. God doesn't judge anybody or judge when anybody does. Well, of course he's a judge. And you better be glad he's a judge. If God is not a judge, then nothing, nothing that's, been broken or made wrong in all of history of all none of it's going to be made right but because God is a judge it is going to be made right one day so who can uh, who can bring any charge against God's elect it is God who is the judge now what's the simple point there somebody say it it's simple 
You said it. What's the simple point? Who, who, who is the chief justice of the Supreme Court? Oh, I'm going to appeal. Well, I know this girl over here, and she's, you don't, she's really bad. And I know what she did when she was growing up. So I'm going to appeal to the chief justice to get her condemned like she ought to be condemned. But the point is, the, ju the judge, there is no jurisdiction above him. He's already, and it's justification. It's already been done, so there is no, there is no higher place to go. It's already been, the, the, uh, the gavel has already been, boom, uh, acquitted, innocent, go. Or actually, it should be calm. Think about this. When we're declared righteous, it's not so that we can go, it's so that we can come. I had never thought about that. I, heard, I saw somebody say that not too long ago. So there's, nobody can bring a charge. Now, what's Paul doing calling Christians God's elect? Didn't he know how that would bother people? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Oh, well, that's far enough, that's far enough. Because it's true, because that's what we are. But when he says that, he, he puts our place of origin back here before time. Elect. Predestined, same thing. Before you existed, before creation. I don't know how that works. But it's what the Bible tells us. So the point of verse 33 is very... It's very simple. The, the supreme judge has made the declaration, so there's, there's no, nobody can come and say, well, well, no, it's already been done. So it's kind of a dumb question. And then the second one is really the same question, just asked in a different, in a different way, right? Verse 34 who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Who can bring any charge? Who can bring any charge that would condemn? That's kind of the same question. But now, the questioner seems to have Jesus in mind. Well, who can, well, I know who could condemn. Jesus could condemn you. That's who could do it. He's the judge. He could. And he, is, he will be the judge at the last day. I've got a list of references here that make it clear that Christ will be the judge at the last day. Um, so he could do it. But what has he done instead? And as you look at, read the rest of verse 34, you start to kind of shrink back into a corner because you think, oh, what a dumb question that was. Who is to condemn? Christ could do it, but what has he done instead? is the one who died, okay, stop right there. He's already taken the condemnation. We don't really need to go any further. He's the one who died. And notice something. More than that, look at the next words. More than that. What do you mean more than that? There's something more than that? There's something more than Christ's death in my place? But he says it. He says more than that. Who was raised? 
You see how important the resurrection is there, don't you? Who was raised? If you go back to 425 in Romans, Paul says, Jesus was raised for our justification. In other words, when he was raised from the dead, that was the, that was the, uh, the seal, the, the sign, the signal that, er, that his death, everything it accomplished had been received, paid in full. The resurrection was the receipt, paid in full. But that's not all. He keeps going. Who is at the right hand of God? What does that mean? Why would he say it here? Died, took our condemnation, raised for our justification. Justice was fully satisfied at the right hand of God. Why would he add that? What does that mean? Do you remember in Hebrews 1 when it says that, what does it say that Jesus did that the high priest never did after he finished his work? He sat down which is a way of saying my work is done. My work of atonement, my work of, of paying for the sins of the people. So see, with any one of these, you could just stop and that would be, but he adds one more. Who indeed is, is interceding for us. Praying for us constantly. Uh, there's a cross-reference that's so good you have to, you have to hear it. It's Hebrews 7.25. We have a few more minutes. Hebrews 7.25. Uh, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, if you had to pick one verse to prove to prove that a Christian can't be lost again, you could use that one, and you wouldn't need any more. You could use just that one. And Paul throws that in here in his pile of things in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ died. He was raised. He's at the right hand of God, orchestrating all things, by the way. That's what he's doing at the place of authority. And he's praying for you. Now, any one of those four things in verse 34 is enough. Any one of them is enough to prove that a believer can't be lost again. But pile them all together, and that's why verse 1 is true. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Paul still hadn't reached the peak yet. The peak is the last question he's going to ask and how he's going to answer it. And that's the question of verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And it's fascinating how he answers that question. Did you know there's a Nike in the Bible? You have to wait and see. <laughs> this is so good. I, I can't wait till next week. It's so good. You see that word more than conquerors? That's one Greek word. You know what the heart of that word is? It's the word Nike. 
Now, you hear Nike and you think, what do you think? Oh, overly priced shoe. But you know what Nike was in the ancient world? Nike was the Greek goddess of victory. And Paul uses that word in when he says more than conquerors. All right, that's, so that's what we'll do. We'll finish up with uh, the rest of the how Paul answers that last question. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for um, this part of your word. And these are things that, that stretch our imagination and, and stretch our everything. The, the links that you've gone to to purchase and keep a people for yourself for your own glory. So thank you. And we, we mishandle it and we, and we botch it up and talk about it poorly, but there it is. And we ask that you would encourage us with the words on the page and the truth of those words um, this morning. Hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. All righty.